Tonight, our sermon comes from Psalm 136, which can be found on, the, on page 371 of the Bible next to you. Psalm 136. I'm going to do something unusual for us, and I'm going to read the whole thing. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to him who alone does mighty miracles. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to him who made the heavens so skillfully. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to him who placed the earth among the waters. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to him who made the heavenly lights. His faithful love endures forever. The sun to rule the day. His faithful love endures forever. And the moon and stars to rule the night. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to him who killed the firstborn of Egypt. His faithful love endures forever. He brought Israel out of Egypt. His faithful love endures forever. He acted with a strong hand and powerful arm. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to him who parted the Red Sea. His faithful love endures forever. He led Israel safely through. His faithful love endures forever. But he hurled Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea. His faithful love endures forever. Verse 16. Give thanks to him who led his people through the wilderness. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to him who struck down mighty kings. His faithful love endures forever. He killed powerful kings. His faithful love endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, his faithful love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, his faithful love endures forever. God gave the land of these kings as inheritance. His faithful love endures forever. A special possession to his servant Israel. His faithful love endures forever. He remembered us in our weaknesses. His faithful love endures forever. He saved us from our enemies. His faithful love endures forever. He gives food to every living thing. His faithful love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven. His faithful love endures forever. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that you would give us faith to trust what you say, what, you, what we just heard. Your faithful love endures forever. We pray for the grace to, uh, to have the faith to trust what you say. We pray that somehow in what is said here tonight, what is sung, what we eat, what we give, how we pray, that it would in fact grow our faith to trust what you say. Help us to see that it is, in fact, well with our souls. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. For most of my life, I thought people that hated change were dumb. Just being real. I, uh, I thought it was silly to fear something that was almost always good. Uh, and then something happened. Uh, in a period of about two and a half years, we moved from Illinois to Ohio. 
started at one church and after a year started another church while still serving that church and then after nine months got told that we'd be starting at another church in the morning while still starting at another night while still helping this community at night start and then we'd be starting there and add to it that we'd be moving out of our condo and into champion which i'll remind you as a lakeview graduate that champion is on the other side of the lake And I realized in that moment that everyone who has told me that change is terrible is entirely right because change really is hard. Which is not to say that change isn't uh, sometimes a good thing. Uh, We were starting to pack the house this week and looking through bins that my mom had given us of my stuff, which truth be told contained, yes, some of my drawings from kindergarten as well as a fair amount of my brother's drawings from kindergarten. It's kind of hard to tell the difference, I guess. But... Uh, And as we went through that, we found a picture of me in high school, and this picture was me in drama club, and I think I was in 11th grade, and we, in 11th grade, did a performance of of South Pacific. And in South Pacific, there's this scene, which you may, if you've seen the movie, recall, or seen the play, and actually some people in this room actually saw me do this, which is a little weird, Um, but there's a musical number where all the women dress as sailors, and all the men wear boxers and Uh, army boots and grass skirts and coconut bras. Uh, And we found the picture of me in that ensemble, which I chose not to put on the screen tonight because I thought, I can't afford paying for your therapy. So uh, don't imagine it if you can because you can't unthink that. But I was looking at that picture and my wife said, honey, you were so skinny. And I was. I mean, I was like four sticks on a chunkier stick, you know? And when I was in high school, all my friends said I kind of walked like this. And, uh, and so now that I'm in my mid-20s and uh, I, I've kind of taken possession of my body a little more, or as some people from growing up like to say, I've filled out uh, nicely. Um, I, I look at that and I go, that was a nice change. It was a good change to get the braces off. Um, it was a good change to get, uh, you know, maybe a little adult weight on, maybe not as much as I'd like, and, and so very few people like change. And I got to confess, we were talking about this in True Confessions Regeneration, the church I preach at and serve in the mornings, I've been preaching the same sermons, and this sermon resonated in, I think, a pretty deep way this morning, this idea of finding God in change. But as we were talking today, we were wondering if you are in more my stage of life, if you're in your 20s or your 30s, which is a good, goodly number of people, about half and half in this community, but Sometimes when, when you hit, like, say, the over 50 mark, you want less and less change. It becomes harder and harder to deal with. But I, I, I can't help but wonder, when you're in your 20s and your 30s, sometimes all you want is more change. You want the better job. You want the baby. You want the better family. You want the new house. You want more change. And change isn't something quite as scary as it is as you get older. So I'm interested to see how this kind of plays out for us as a community tonight. And it's interesting to see the interplay there. But... Tonight I want to look at this text, this Psalm 136, which really is all about change. And here's my hope, is that by the end of it, we know, um, or at least have a better sense of what exactly is God's purpose in change, and what our response to change ought to be. And I want to start by looking at verses 10 through 22. Verses 10 through 22 of Psalm 136 basically condense about six maybe more centuries of Israelite history into just a few lines of poetry. It, it starts with Israel in captivity, which is mostly outlined in the book of Exodus, how, or if you've seen it, the movie The Prince of Egypt, uh, and how they left, they left Egypt through the Red Sea, 
Uh, it doesn't really mention this, but part of Israel's journey was to wander for 40 years in the desert before they could take possession of the land that they were promised. It says in verse 21, God gave the land of these kings as an inheritance. They were promised a land, but the problem was when they got to the land, they saw it was already occupied, kind of like if you were about to rent an apartment and only when you paid your security bonds and went to move in, you found that somebody was actually still living there, awkward. And so Israel had, through a series of conquests, had to take the lamb back as their own special possession. And so they moved from captivity and slavery into freedom while walking through water, while wandering through a desert, while getting to the edge of a land and having to take it by conquest after a number of generations. And, and I look at that and all I can think of is Israel experienced, albeit maybe in a long amount of time on some level, but also if you were living it a short amount of time, a tremendous amount of change. Israel, the nation, people, and it experienced a tremendous amount of change, which I think is so interesting about this text because it moves from these changes back and forth to this one constant, which we'll hit in a minute. But here's the truth. This, this, this psalm and this sermon are not about biblical history. It's about you and it's about me. It's about how the nature of our lives is that change is the one constant. The one thing that is constant is that nothing else is constant. The one thing that does not change is that everything is available to change at any moment. And yeah, for some of us, those changes are really, really nice. We can get a promotion. We can get a nice apartment. We might find that we got a scholarship that we weren't expecting or some good news that we weren't looking for. But some of the change is actually not good change. Some of the changes, uh, someone you love got in an accident. You lost your job. You can't find work. Um, your job really is hard right now. You, 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 you're, you, the doctor keeps coming back and saying, we don't know why you're not getting pregnant. The dream that you had isn't being fully realized. Some of the change that we experience has the power to change just the very, very fabric of our lives. And I, I, I've come to see, even in the last few months, honestly, that when change comes, when a change is on the horizon, and even in process, our imaginations are very, very active for what that change is going to take from us. Our imaginations are very clear and fast on this change is going to take these things that I like from me. And so we get anxious and we get angry and we uh, complain and we whine and we grumble all the way through unless you're like a super spiritual person, then can you not come to this church and ruin it for the rest of us? Go somewhere else. Change is hard. And so we, we get these negative responses and we kind of even, kind of like, I sometimes emotionally feel like I'm balling up and just kind of trying to take it until I can wake up and it not be happening anymore. But the ultimate question is, if change is so constant, if change has such a power to um, alter our lives, the question is, why does God allow or ordain or whatever word makes you feel more comfortable? Why does he allow or ordain so much change in our lives? And I found this quote by J.I. Packer. So Dylan, I'm going to skip a couple from where you're looking right now. And the quote says this, God sends his people both sorrows and joys in order to detach their love from other things and attach it to himself. God sends, let's change the words a little bit. God sends his people both sorrows and joys. God sends his people change in order to detach their love from other things and attach it to himself. God sends you a breakup 
in order to detach your love from that person and attach it to something else, which is himself. God sends you a lost job in order to detach your love from other things and attach to himself. God sends an illness in order to detach your love from other things attached to yourself. God sends you a raise, not so you can be more attached to money, but so that you can, your heart can be more attached to the one who is so generous with you. Sometimes, well, really all the time, God uses the change that we experience in our lives to his own ends. There's a really, really great verse in Romans, and if you've hung around the church, you've heard it a lot. You don't have to go there, but it's Romans 8, uh, verse 28. It says this, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those, catch this, who love God. They're called according to his purpose. The problem is our spiritual lives get disordered when we choose to love something more than God. And so God uses change to reorder our loves so that we love him most and best. But in my lived experience, that's just not how I see change. When I experience change, I immediately end up on like DEFCON 1000. You know, I'm on red alert. When we, uh, two and a half years ago, I was serving at a, as a youth pastor at a Bible church in northern Illinois in Chicago suburbs. And, it, and this is a little unfamiliar in our little realm of Trumbull County, but when you get into the non-denominational world, which, I, and by non-denominational I mean um, there's no governing, higher governing structure outside the church, keeping the church on track. It's just them and you. Um, when you get into that world in Chicago, it's kind of a fast track. You start as a youth pastor, and then you move to a bigger church where you're the youth pastor over five youth pastors, and then you become the adult ministries pastor, and then eventually you become the senior pastor somewhere else. And so I got my foot into the non-denominational world in Chicago suburbs, and I thought, well, this is it. Here we go. We're going to live in the suburbs uh, which means we're probably going to raise entitled kids, but we'll walk through that when we get there. And um, uh, and 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 then we're gonna and we're just gonna be in this world. and We're gonna live in Chicago, which is great because my family lives. My wife's family lives in South Dakota, and I have family in Ohio and in Arizona. And those are short plane rides or short drives. Well, 14 hours. It's not a short drive, but versus 20 hours from here, and that was good. But it became apparent about six months uh, before I was supposed to graduate with my master's degree that. This church and I weren't going to be a good fit. They weren't going to have the money to pay me. I wouldn't have probably stayed even if they could. And, and um, so we started praying about where do we need to go? What's our next step? And my wife, as we started praying about this, said, I, I keep feeling like we need to talk to Rick Oaks, which some of you know him. He's the pastor at First United Methodist where I did internships. I think you need to call him because every time we pray about this, I keep thinking about Warren. Now, let's be clear. When she said that, I said, we're not going to pray about this anymore. Uh, because I had zero desire to move back to my hometown um, at, in any way, shape, or form. I had zero desire to become a Methodist pastor. I had zero desire, did I say it again? I mean, I had zero desire now to become a champion resident, no offense. And, um, and uh, so we were going to, at least we were living in Howland, you know, and, uh, and, and here we are. And moving back here has been one of the best things that has ever happened to us because regeneration would have never happened, obviously, if, if we wouldn't have moved back. And now I'm serving at a church in the mornings that I just adore. And there's so many pieces that being here and near some of my family, near my father and my stepmother, that has just been such a gift in this season, even though 
so much anxiety and frustration. I just talked with so many people about, in Illinois, I don't want to do this. This isn't right. Can't we do anything else? I mean, I looked everywhere, anywhere but here, and this was the only door that opened, and we came, and it's one of the best things that's ever happened to me. Sometimes change actually works out. Another change that a lot of you know that I've been undergoing is I, I, I've been um, going to the gym. <clears throat> I, uh, for the first time, just saying, uh, I deadlifted 135 pounds this week, uh, which... I know for some of you, like Michael Ingram could like squish me with his fingers. So like that's not a big deal. But like um, I, that's 135 pounds more than I've ever deadlifted. And, and, and even though I, I started going to the gym and I was like, I'm going to be that guy. I'm the scrawny slash fat guy that like goes to the machines and is like, I don't know what I'm doing with this thing. Oh, you know, and like the other guys would look at me and I swear, like I'd be like, I don't need that machine. It's fine. You know, like I'm okay. Um, and uh, mercifully, Zach's moved his stuff into his own facility. It's much more comfortable. But there's something that's transformed in the last five months where, like, I'm stronger and I feel better and um, I can deadlift stuff, which I just think is really cool. We get so nervous about these changes. We get so anxious. We, we're so resistant. We dig our heels in. But the truth is, as we look at Psalm 136, this is not how God built you to experience change. God did not build you to be afraid of change. He did not build you to be anxious about change. He did not build you to grumble or complain about change. As I wrestled through this text, my big question was, what is the biblical response to change? What, What is the way the Bible sees me responding to change? And I realized, as I looked at this text, that it's thankfulness. Verse 1 says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods, verse 2. Give 3, give thanks to the Lord of lords, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, verse 10, verse 13, verse 16, verse 17. Throughout this text, verse 26, in the New Living Translation, no less than 12 times does the psalmist say, give thanks. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 times, the psalmist says, when you're experiencing change, here's your response. Be thankful. Be thankful. So that when we experience change, we say, thank you, God, that you brought that person out of my life so that I could be closer to you. Thank you, God, for getting me out of that job so that I wouldn't be around those people anymore. Thank you, God, for bringing change in my life that makes me more like you. Here, the biblical response to change is thankfulness because change is God's number one tool, his number one instrument when it comes to moving you from your vision to your, for your life to his. It is his number one instrument for bringing you from your plan to his plan. It is his number one tool when it comes from moving from your purpose to his purpose. Change is how we get on God's program for our lives, period. We cannot stay the same and continue to be into the, living into the vision that God has for us, we can't. We fall short. And the reason the psalmist, and here's the deal, it seems incomprehensible to say, if some of you are walking through some changes right now that I know are really, really hard. Hear me, I know it's hard. Or you're in this place that like, the change that's in your life is that it's not changing, right? I'm, as I'm thinking about it, a not change is still a change. It's still hard to live in that place And so it's impossible to think, how could I be thankful for these changes? How could I be 
glad that these changes are coming to my life. The only way that I'm able to do that, hear me on this, the only way I'm able to do that is if I'm sure of the one who's created the change, who's leading me through the change, and is going to bring it to the end. I'm going to be anxious about a change if I'm not sure who brought it about, why it's happening, and who's going to make sure it is handled well. I'm going to freak out. People who are not thankful about change are people who have forgotten who God is. People who have who get anxious and complain and grumble are people who have forgotten who God is because this text, Psalm 136, goes to tremendous lengths, I mean tremendous lengths, to highlight to us God's character. First, as good, that God is good all the time, that he is mighty and powerful and strong, and that he is unfailingly loving. It's only when you remember those things that you can walk with the change. And here's the deal. Frankly, when change comes into my life, it is like I have never met God before. It is like, oh, hi, God, I'm Kyle. Who are you? You know, I mean, it is like, I, it is every moment and every decision that I have made that has built in me trust in his faithfulness and care and goodness and love and power in my life, whoop, like wipes right out of my brain, like it's on a flash drive that somebody just ripped off, you know? And, and it's, it's not there anymore. And that the psalm wants to make sure that we know that God is good, that God is mighty, that he is unfailingly loving. Look at verses 1 through 3. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. This text wants us to know that God is good. And people say this on Facebook all the time, right? Like, oh, God is so good to me. Um, hashtag blessed. Um, and, uh, but the reality is, is we cannot risk trivializing, but we cannot risk forgetting that God's every intention is good. Uh, what does James say? James says, um, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no shadow due to change. The text wants us to be reminded, God wants us to know that he is good. I used to tell my youth group kids um, that God's not like your girlfriend, he doesn't play games. Um, and he doesn't. He's not affectionate one moment and distant the next. He's not moody. He's not fickle. God's every intention, every action, every thought towards you is that of goodness, and that's something you can trust in. The thing that also the text wants to do in verses 4 through 9 is remind us of God's power. Verse 4, give thanks to him alone who does mighty miracles. Verse 5, give thanks to him who made the heavens so skillfully, who placed the earth among the waters, who made the heavenly lights, the sun to rule the day, and the moon and stars to rule the night. Listen, God in his, Hebrews says, by the word of his power, ensures that the globe spins not too fast and not too slow so that it can sustain life. And he makes sure it's close enough to the sun to sustain life, like warm enough, but not so warm that we get scorched out and not so cold that we get frozen over. I mean, and then I look at that and I look at the changes, like Kyle whining about like all this work it's taking to get us into this house and champion, for goodness sake. And God's over here like, oh, you're trying to move into your house? I once made a son. <laughs> oh, 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 that's, oh, you're having a hard time with this transition? I once transitioned to the world from nothing into something. If, and it's in those moments that I, I suddenly become aware of, like, something that I used to be annoyed with my mother when she'd do, but like the tiniest violin thing, like, 
this is the world's time. I mean, I am, my life is a tiny violin in God's ears. Not in a way that annoys him, but I mean, it, it, in a way that he just sees it so much bigger. And if God can make the sun, I, I, I'm, I'm relatively sure he can handle us. He wants us to know that he's mighty, who does mighty miracles. And then verse 23 through 26, I just love how this ends. He remembers us in our weaknesses. He saved us from our enemies. He gives food to every living thing. Give thanks to the God of heaven. I mean, in every verse, 26 verses, what does it say? His faithful love endures forever. Again, I said this last week if you were here. The psalmist doesn't repeat, Hebrews don't repeat themselves. They can't just run out and get a new ballpoint pen when they run out of ink. They can't just go and open a new notebook when they run out of paper. I mean, they were like, here, write this psalm. It's like when you got that test book when you were in high school, a composition book, a blue book, you know, to write a final. Here's the eight pages to write your essay. And they were saying, here, write this Bible book on just these eight pages. I mean, they don't repeat themselves. They don't get distracted. And yet this psalmist wants to make a point. His faithful love endures forever, times 26. What do you think the psalm is about? It is about God's unchangingness in the midst of our changes. It's about how God is unfailingly, unstoppably, consistently, always loving you always, ever, only seeking your highest good. In every given moment, God is doing 10,000 things to show you that he, he loves you, and you're maybe aware of three of them. Because most of the time, Ephesians says this in the message, mostly what God does is love you. That's what he spends his day doing. What'd you do today, God? I loved Mackenzie. I loved Sid. I loved Mitch. I loved Dylan. I mean, that's awesome. And it's these things that we need to know when we experience the changes that we're going through because when we do that, when we remember those, it keeps the flash drive plugged in. It helps us remember when I'm starting this new job, when I'm fighting for this dream, when I'm about to start a new grade at school, when I'm about to start a new semester, when I'm wondering about what's going to happen in this domain in my life, that even in this, God is good. Even in this, God is powerful. Even in this, God is mighty. Just, just two things. And then we'll, have, we'll celebrate the table together. Two challenges. First, cling to the one who does not change, not what's changing. Cling to the one who does not change, not what's changing. I mean, we have this tendency when something changes just to grip on. Like, buckle down, I'm going to white knuckle this sucker because you're not taking this from me unless you pry my cold, dead fingers off of it. I mean, we just cling to it. And we were never meant to cling to what's changing. We were meant to the one who, cling to the one who never changes. And for me, that's, that's something that happens in prayer. And I know that's like the pastor punt, right? Like, pray about it, see you next week. But I've got to tell you that in this season, for me and Steph, we have been praying together more than we have ever in our marriage. I mean, twice yesterday, stop, we need to pray about this. And, and that is somehow in prayer, God like pries our fingers open so that we can ex like open-handedly experience the change that he's leading us into, which leads me to the second thing. You need to live life with an open palm. 
I, uh, I had a professor in my days at Moody, which was where I did my undergrad, and his name is Dr. Ronald Sauer, and he taught me four semesters of biblical Greek. I think I know like two words, so that was a good investment. And uh, Dr. Sauer was from Mississippi and had lived in the north for most of his adult life, and this is a guy in his 70s, but he still talked like this all the time. And it's just true. It, it is. It's just how it talked all the time. Class. And he called me Kay Hamilton because it was always the first initial for guys and then their middle name. And he uh, would do these devotions every day in class. And one of them, he always came down, class, you got to live life with an open palm. And he first started talking about this when uh, either during the delivery of their first or second son, his wife, whose name is Sweet Sue, all the time, Sweet Sue, and uh, a sweet Sue, um, oh, I do know a Greek word. It's, called, it's doron, which is what he called, doron is the Greek word for gift. And so he called his wife doron. Not flattering, I don't think, but still cute. And uh, so this open palm thing came from his, one, during one of the births of his children, during delivery, his wife, sweet Sue, looked at him and said, Ron, I feel my life leaving me. And she instantly became pale and the doctors pushed him out of the room. And he said, I went into the bathroom and I knelt. My first thought was, ew. Uh, and I knelt and I said to the Lord, I'm holding my wife in an open palm. Um, and I was so struck by that. And, and he, she lived. Sweet Sue lived. She's still sweet as ever. And, but his big thing was, everything in your life you've got to hold with an open palm. Firstly, because at any moment, God... Um, wa- God wants us to live life with an attitude that anything that we have is his. And if we live life with an open palm, that means he can take at any time. But here's the more important thing. When you live life with an open palm, not only is it a posture of releasing, it's also a posture of receiving. When we, when we sometimes, this is true, and this is probably like cute and on Facebook somewhere, and that's not where I got this, but sometimes God really, really does take things out of our lives only to give us something better that relationship, that person, that job, that circumstance, he takes it out of your hands so that he can give you something better because his heart is to give you what's good. And so you got to live with an open palm. And so just to close tonight, I, I want it, before we go to the table, I just want to invite you to do something. I want to pray. And as we do, I was wondering if you could pray like this. Uh, because again, it's a posture of releasing but also receiving. And here's what I want you to do is I'm going to pray a little bit and say, God, I'm going, God, help us release what we name in our minds right now. And as we release, and as you think of that thing, I want you to put your hands down as if you're dropping something. When I say, God, as what we name in our minds now, we release, just put your hands down. And then I'm going to say, God, we receive what you have for us. And I want you to turn your hands back up. Okay? So let me pray for us. Father, we confess that change is hard and that sometimes the change that we're going to, through is that there's no change whatsoever. But in any case, Lord, we want to be open-handed people. We don't want to hold things um, with claws of steel. We want to live a life of posture, of openness toward you. And so, Father, as we turn our hands down, we release that which we name silently now.
Father, we know your heart is to give us every good and perfect gift. And so as we turn our palms upward, which is a posture of receiving, we thank you for what you have been already divinely conspiring to give us. Thank you for your goodness, for your power and your might, which we experience every day in our lives. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We take communion every week, um, which I think is kind of particularly poignant tonight because as we talk about change, we every week as a community to return to a table to remind us of the one who does not change. And sometimes when things like that happen, you run the risk of um, ritualizing something. You run the risk of it becoming dry and boring. And yet, hopefully for you, as it's been for me, there's been something about returning to this table every week that reminds me of the constancy of the one of whom we speak tonight. And so, um, in a few minutes, um, I'm going to pray for this just briefly. And whenever you're ready, you can come forward and take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup. And as you do, you're encountering the one, the, the very presence of the one who does not change, the one who, um, in whom there is no shadow due to change. And as we encounter him, um, we're refreshed and strengthened to walk through the next six days. Just want to read these words. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, he took, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, Paul says, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes. Something about this binds not only us to one another and, and us to the story of God throughout all history, but it even binds us to Jesus afresh, puts us back on the same page with him so that we can walk in unity with him. Whatever change you're walking through, about to walk through, that you just got on the other side of, this meal promises to sustain you. Let me pray and then we'll sing and eat and all the goodness. Father, pour out your spirit on these simple gifts of bread and cup that they might become to us the body and blood of Jesus, given to us as nourishment for our souls in a world of ever-changing circumstances. Use this meal to unite us together again with you in a deeper and more intimate way, but also use it to unite us as one people in your presence, bearing it into the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Table is ready.
oceans rise, my soul will rest in your embrace, for I am yours, and you are mine. Your grace abounds in deepest waters, your sovereign hand will be my guide. Where feet may fail and fear surrounds me, you've never failed and you won't start now. And I will call rise my soul will rest in your embrace for i am yours and you are mine oh Soul will rest in your embrace. 